Hello and welcome to Written in Uncertainty, an Elder Scrolls podcast sat firmly in the grey maybe of Tamriel and proud member of the Robots Radio Podcast Network. My name is Aramethius and today we're discussing a people that have been vilified by virtually everyone they meet on Tamriel. For their part they're incredibly distrustful of outsiders, uh, they build very little in the way of permanent settlements of their own and despite all that at one point they rose to rule Cyrodiil. Today we're asking... Who are the Reachmen? Before we get to that, though, I want to say thank you ever so much to a whole load of new patrons and one returning patron. Uh, Despite the fact that these have become increasingly irregular podcasts, I'm still getting people signing up for patrons. So thank you very much, all of you. Thank you in particular to Gregory, David, Emily, Michael, Puffy Cheeks, and a welcome back to Blartoast. Thank you so, so much, guys, that you've chosen to support me. And I'm really, really grateful that you um, that you've taken the time, taken the time and the effort to um, to support me. And I do hope you've enjoyed getting early access to the content that I put out and the notes that I make as part of this. And if anyone else wants to become my patron, they can sign up at patreon.com forward slash written in uncertainty to sign up for that. And you sign up on a per episode basis now because I'm aware that this is becoming increasingly erratic as to when I publish things. So it's only when this content arrives that you actually get billed for it. And if you don't want to have an ongoing commitment, then there's also Ko-fi, that's K-O-F-I, that you can just drop a tip in the jar there at at ko-fi.com forward slash Aramithius. Thank you so much. And I also wanted to highlight that we have network sponsors with the Robot Radio Network now. And in particular, I wanted to highlight NordVPN. I'm sure that what with the lockdowns that are going on everywhere, everyone is reaching the end of whatever content they can get on their streaming services um, that are by default. And with VPNs, you can change where you're located and get access to larger libraries of content if yours are particularly short or you want to see what else is out there. So, um, but there is a 33% discount on a two-year subscription to NordVPN available through the Robots Radio Network. Just follow the link that is in the show notes and you can get a quite large discount on the two-year subscription. Before we kick off properly, I do just want to say this is my own understanding of the Reachmen or the Reach folk, to use the more gender neutral term, which I will be using more or less throughout the thing. But this is not necessarily the whole truth of the matter. I may have missed stuff, misinterpreted it, or just got things plain wrong. Please, whatever you do, don't take me as the final authority on anything to do with the Elder Scrolls. You may have different ideas as well, and if so, I would absolutely love to hear them please email me at writteninuncertaintypodcast at gmail.com or tweet me at Aramithius or get in touch however else you can. And also, if you want to check out how I came to my conclusions, see the text that I've been drawing from in full and see whether I'm using them correctly, visit the Written in Uncertainty blog post for this episode at writteninuncertainty.com forward slash podcast forward slash reachman. This contains a transcript and links to all of the sources that I'll be drawing from. So if you're curious about the whole context, there are links to all the sources that I'm quoting in there. And so who are the Reachmen, just to kick off with? 
the Reachmen are a culture of men, as in mannish races, that inhabit the area of Tamriel that sits on Skyrim's western border and High Rock's eastern border. They get called Bretons quite frequently, but they have some unique history that separates them from the rest of High Rock. Uh, they're as much Nord as they are anything else, because the Reach is claimed by Skyrim as its territory, but was retaken at various points by the Dorani Elves, mixing their ancestry with that of the, of the Mur as well as with Man with some possible influence from orcish tribes in the area as well. Uh, the first edition pocket guide to the Empire, in its ever merphobic fashion, puts it like this, quote, During the first Empire, it was incorporated as one of the holds of Skyrim, and many Nords settled in its rolling hills and pleasant valleys. But they paid a terrible price during the dissolution of Skyrim's Empire. The old Murray retook the Western Reach with a vengeance, slaughtering the Nord colonists to a man, precious little Nord blood now flows in the veins of today's Reachmen. As a hedge against future incursions from Skyrim, the Old Merry fashioned the Western Reach into an impregnable bastion. Thus, the Western Reach remained under Elven rule to the longest of any part of High Rock, and the legacy of this dark sojourn can still be seen today. Now, this explains why the Reach was cut off from the rest of Skyrim to such a large degree, because they were under the heel of the Dereni for quite some time, but I don't think it's anywhere near as bad as the Pocket Guide points out that that book is very eager to hang all of the bad things that are happening on Tamriel on Elven shoulders, and I think that they're making it far too blunt and being far too aggressive with that perspective um, when they say this. The timeline for the Reach folk here puts it that the Dairenni reasserted their rule over the Reach during the War of Succession in the 4th century of the First Era, and the original settlers that were there, having been, quote, descended originally from one of the earliest Atmoran tribes on Tamriel, if the pocket guide is to be believed, I'm not 100% on that personally, because we know there are grumblings about the timeline of how men settled Tamriel, the pocket guide would assert that Skyrim was the first human kingdom from the biggest wave of settlement, which would put the Reachmen as a splinter group of some of Eskrimor's people. However, if we follow the logic of the book Frontier Conquest and Accommodation, it's possible that the Reach folk were an earlier migration of Atmorans than Eskrimor and his companions. However, I also think there's some quite serious implications in if that line is taken. The Reachmen are universally considered Bretons, even by themselves in the fourth era. And if they were descended from the original Atmoran settlers, they're a different type of stock to the Bretons, who are considered Nedic in origin. They come from a different branch of tribes that were never really considered Atmoran in quite the same way. Now, there is an argument to be made that the Atmorans are merely the biggest wave of Nedic migrants, but even if that's true, the Reach folk are distinct from the rest of the Bretons because they weren't necessarily interbred with the Dorenni at the same point as the rest of High Rock. I mean, we don't know precisely when this happens, but if we take the first edition pocket guide at its word, the Man Murray were found beyond the Reach, so to speak, which suggests that the Reach itself was populated by purely Manish cultures at the point of the Reach's incorporation into the first Nordic Empire. If that's the case, then the Reachmen only became mixed blood after the War of Succession during the occupation or reoccupation by the Dairenni. And now I think about it, that has some really quite horrible 
implications for how the Direni reconquered places. I mean, rape has been used as an ethnic weapon of war in the real world, but that's the first hint that we've seen of it in Tamriel, and I think that's probably the only way that it could really have been done because we have some sources that indicate the reach are occupied by men others that it was part of the Dairani hegemony so it's a little ambiguous as to what the original state of the reach folk was but if the pocket guide is right then something quite horrible has gone on in the reach folks history and as a result it feels a bit like the reach folk have never really progressed beyond the original nedic state if that's actually what they started as if I can put my foot in my mouth even more than I have done already by bringing up systemic rape as part of the way that war gets waged, it feels to me like the Reachmen were never able to rule themselves in anything but the most basic terms. Uh, they were first taken over as part of the Nordic Empire, then by the Dereni, and then by the Nords again, and have had sporadic independence ever since. It's only been stuff that's lasted for a couple of generations at most or maybe i think eso brings it to three maybe four generations of of rulers uh, something like that but it almost feels like the way that the reachmen are presented in the main series is that they are to be seen as people who don't want to be governed but it's also quite uh, rightly said that they've never really had any chance to do so for a lot of their history i don't think uh, this is something that's moderately a problem in game design in general i think particularly from the archetypes that the reach folk are drawing from i get the sense that at least in the elder scrolls online incarnation that they are very much built on celtic archetypes all of the various ach names like durkorach madanak and kadach in particular just shout at me that this is the main inspiration for the reach folk along with little nods here and there like the idea from the book the reach food letters that quote the knot shape resonates with the reach folk which is a callback to the celtic knot symbol it's kind of slapping you in the face that with with this reference and so it, it i i struggle with thinking are they not trying to say something about the inherent barbarism of the Celts, which almost feels like it's descended from Roman commentaries on the Celts, which have been accepted entirely uncritically by whoever's taking the archetypes here. Um, and the fractious nature of the Reach Folk, though, or the independent nature of the Reach Folk, whichever way you want to spin it, also means that they're a useful device for the games, which we've seen play out a lot in the Elder Scrolls Online. While some tribes can be used as allies, quest givers, or whatever for the player and their goals, others can be used as enemies without any real contradiction with what the particular culture is trying to do. You just need to write about a reach tri folk tribe that is... ...patriarchal, and then... ...uses hawker entrails... As wedding gifts and funerary rites, and you've got yourself a new Reach Folk tribe that can serve whatever narrative role is needed in the moment. This has been taken to its logical conclusion in the Elder Scrolls Online, because as Benefactor has pointed out in an episode of the UES podcast, 
that the ma majority of events in the Elder Scrolls Online, from Varen's Rebellion to Clivia Farn taking over elsewhere to the resurrection of the Grey Host, all have roots in the Long House Emperor's rule of Cyrodiil. Even those that don't directly involve the Emperors or the Reach folk, like the events of the Orsinium DLC, tend to use the Reachmen as something within the plots to some degree. Their perennial outsider viewpoint makes them just a very useful tool for presenting an alternative view on particular matters, which I'm personally sure is a deliberate choice by the writers at Zenimax Online Studios, in particular because Lehman Tuttle responded to a tweet I put out to that effect, but anyway, that does mean that the Reach folk will almost always be involved with something else and never really able to tell stories that are entirely their own, if I can put it that way. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean need to be bad, because to give possibly one of the best examples in pop culture, Mad Max's stories do exactly the same. He kind of disappears off after the first film and gets involved in everyone else's stories rather than telling his own, and th those stories are very, very rich and quite fun. And But that's possibly the feeling I get for a whole culture, which is... It just feels a little bit more on the level of, eh, should it be that way? Um, that's possibly an unfair characterization for the writers at Zos, but that's the feeling I get. And it feels like the Reach folk can only ever really aspire to be deuteragonists, even if we're not actively trying to kill or stop them in the course of the games. To an extent, the treatment of them in the games feels like how the Celts are treated by Roman sources, as I've kind of indicated before. I mean, barbaric and outside the bounds of what more settled people call civilization um, is the general feel you get whenever they appear. Reach folk are organized in tribes, they're scratching a living out of harsh ground, they never settle, they never build, they wear animal skins. All of those sorts of stuff just feel really mired in, Cel in primitive Celtic imagery, in inverted commas if I put it that way. Most of the written sources on the Reach folk are at pains to point out that they are intentionally isolationist, if not downright hostile, to the notion of civilization as most of Tamriel understands it. Even the figure of Kadak, who is presented as the hope of the Reach in some ways, gets Markarth to be civilized by imposing a quasi-imperial form of authority rather than anything that emerges out of the Reach itself. To quote the report on the deskbot of Markarth, To the Reachman, he, Kadach, speaks of a free and independent Reach, holding true to Reach tradition and scorning the weak ways of outsiders. His words, not mine. But underneath that Reach for the Reach folk bluster, Kadach uses the trappings and systems of Imperial authority to transform Markarth into a functional state for the first time in the Reach's long and bloody history. And... I just realized there that I've been changing how I've been pronouncing the Reach Folk names because of I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce the Gaelic A-C-H. I am really sorry about, or O-C-H, or just the C-H in general. I am really sorry that I have not studied Gaelic. I have been given some pointers from the ESO guild I'm part of, but I'm probably likely to get all that very wrong. But anyway, so according to that source... Even the most successful modes of Reach Folk society are based around other systems. Or maybe that's a little bit of an incharitable reading. I think I've made my biases quite clear so far in this podcast. But for all that the report highlights that Kadach uses Imperial systems, I don't think that would work 
unless other Reachfolk clans bought into it. The book On the Clans of the Reach states that, quote, To this day, Reachmen view the Longhouse Emperors as war leaders they follow of their own free will. Kneeling to a king, even a Reachman king in Cyrodiil, is a thing that weaker peoples do. Given that, the use of Cyrodiilic systems is probably more just what Kadach knows from his education, rather than a system that's attempting to impose institutions on the Reach folk. I wouldn't imagine that the Reach folk would necessarily buy into that in any case, because that would mean that the clan chiefs would give up their power and independence, and the geography of the Reach itself almost conspires against a single unified rule for the whole region. The book Provinces of Tamriel states, quote, The rugged highlands, strongholds and isolated valley settlements have encouraged the fierce independence of the various local Breton clans, and this continuous tribal nature has never been completely integrated into a provincial or imperial identity. That isolation is part of what makes the Reach clans so independent, as exercising military authority over them is something that is not easily done. This has resulted in several distinct clans that are independent of each other, even if they do share the same cultural heritage. The book Politics of the Reach says this, The great difficulty in dealing with the Reach is the fact that each individual clan sees itself as its own polity, free to raid, trade, make war or agree to peace with anyone it chooses. To forge a lasting peace with the Reach, one would have to negotiate with dozens of different clans, some of whom hate each other so much that they would never agree to honour a peace their enemies cho choose to accept. Now this makes the clan the core structure of any given Reach folk's identity, and the clan clans nurture a variety of different relations, including feuds on occasion. Some of them even seem to have a formal structure for when feuds are carried out and over what, but I doubt that's universal. And even the state of clans and what the clans are is fluid. We have this description of the clans from On the Clans on the Reach. Quote, Clans fall somewhere between extended family and home village. Some people in a clan are related to each other, but others adopt the clan name to mark their allegiance. New clans appear all the time as bands of like-minded Reach folk come together to settle new land, follow herds of game, or in more chaotic times, take up raiding to plunder neighbouring lands. As a result, clans can be surprisingly fluid, breaking up and reforming over time. By the time of the Fourth Era, things are a little more condensed, it feels like. We encounter the Reachmen as the Forsworn, and according to the book The Madman on the Reach, it has a particular Reachman telling them that, quote, Go back and tell your empire that we will have our kingdom again. Or our own kingdom again, sorry. The word kingdom here, rather than a looser term like land or something like that, suggests that the events of the third and fourth eras have pushed the Reach folk into being a distinct singular identity. I'm not sure entirely when this happened, as the first pocket guide, which is written in the late second era, doesn't reference much in the way of the different tribes of Reach folk, but in fairness we've established the pocket guide is already decidedly biased in that regard. However, this may just be the attitude of scholars throughout any time, as On the Clans of the Reach says this, quote, Until Durkarach, the Black Drake, led the warriors of the Reach against Cyrodiil, few scholars ever described the peoples of the Reach as anything other than howling barbarians. The rest of Tamriel views the Reach folk as one great unruly horde existing in constant anarchy. 
a state of ignorance whose cost the Black Drake's warriors made only too clear a generation ago. It feels like this attitude prevails even among the Reach folk themselves in the Fourth Era, as the Forsworn identifies simply as the Forsworn, uh, with several residents of Markarth just identifying as Reach folk, but without many obvious cultural markers that we can associate with them, and there's no indication they even think of it as different tribes anymore. Madman of the Reach suggests that it's Tiber's coming that has slowly but surely eroded the Reach culture, to the point that the Forsworn are a small group that just cling to whatever traditions they can get wind of or bring into their group and replicate. Without any real records, that's very difficult to confirm, and Arianus Arius is a sympathetic enough author to the Reach's cause that they may have fudged the scholarship in that regard. But I think it's plausible uh, that that's what's happened, and without knowing what happens between the time of ESO and Tiber's conquest, we can't really say for sure. All that we can know is that by the time of the Fourth Era, the Forsworn held their own during the period of um, a brief period of the Stormcrown Interregnum, in the years 174, in the years 174 to 176 of the Fourth Era. My guess is that they simply took Markarth and ran that as a city-state rather than taking over the whole of what we would consider the Reach. But that's just my own feeling. We don't really have any indications either way there. And there are also notes that hag ravens rose to prominence for the Forsworn, likely in a similar way to the kind of bargain that Red Eagle made with them, which is something we'll get to. However, it's not sure that they really understand them in the way that they're presented. Herbane's bestiary on hag ravens notes that the Forsworn leave, quote, small crude trinkets and altars to these witches, which suggests just some vague attempt to appease them. It's just, we've noticed you like this stuff. Here's a bunch of this stuff. Now, do stuff we like, please. But um, we don't know whether, um, whether they're left knowingly or whether the Hagravens have asked for them, but it feels like a possibility to me that the Forsworn aren't really certain of what the end relationship is between them and the Hag Ravens, and it feels a little fractured now that the traditional Reach folk social structure is pretty much defunct. Precisely how the tribes were governed at both an intra and an inter clan level can vary widely though. Internally we've got the standard clan chief idea that gets attested in several places, Although there are some clans noted in the book Clans of the Reach, a guide that are matriarchal. Uh, from the text above, chiefs are things that just happen, and other forms of leadership can be both more and less important all at once. I think this is more because the Reach folk put stock in what someone can do rather than what they call themselves. On the Clans of the Reach puts it like this, quote, Some call themselves chieftains, speakers, elders or kings, although most Reachmen think calling oneself king is sort of putting on airs. Decades go by in the Reach with no clan chiefs bothering to make the claim. But if enough Reach folk agree that one is strong enough to claim the title, then any clan chief can be a king. In fact, there have been periods in history where multiple clan chiefs called themselves kings at the same time. As the Reachmen say, anyone can be a king in the Reach, but no one is king of the Reach. Not even Durkarach claimed that title. 
To this day, Reachmen view the Longhouse Emperors as war leaders they follow of their own free will. Kneeling to a king, even a Reachman king in Cyrodiil, is a thing that weaker peoples do. That any larger group of the Reach folk has to be a coalition of equals is something that again harks back to the popular picture of the Celts that the Reach folk draw from. With Scottish Celts in particular, there's the image of a lot of rowdy chiefs that go to war together for shared reasons and then break apart because of all sorts of particular personal and political differences and often with no real difference between those two categories. Everything is based on the various alliances that can be pulled together and maintained by those personal relationships, which is what Kadach is doing at the time of the Elder Scrolls Online, and that's why that's so interesting, because he's the first to try to apply institutional governments rather than any kind of personal governance to any portion of the Reach, although it's still quite tied up with familial and personal ties in the way that it's done. It's sort of a glimmer of a proto-state for the Reach in the sense of having institutions that go beyond individuals. Or maybe that's just Markarth though, rather than the Reach as a whole, so I'm not sure how far we can generalise that. Because the thing is that Markarth holds a particular place in the structure of Reach folk society, which is reflected in the leadership and how they all relate to each other. Markarth is the closest thing that there is to a Reach folk city for much of Tamriel's history. The book A History of Markarth, A Story in Stone, has it that the Reach folk intermittently occupied the Dwemer ruins that form most of the city's structure, quote, within a few years of the Dwemer's disappearance, with permanent residence in a little over 200 years after the Dwemer disappeared. It also mentions, quote, the strongest clan chief residing in the, the place claiming a particular title. Uh, this implies that there could be multiple clans occupying Markarth, which allows it to almost function as a Reach in miniature, so to speak. The politics of the Reach claims that, quote, It is best to think of the Reach not as one land, but two, Markarth and the Wilds. Traditionally, whoever rules in Markarth exercises little power over the Wilds, while the strong clans of the wilderness lack the strength or the inclination to govern the city of the Reach. In this, Markarth seems to function like Orsinium does for the Orcs, as the most centralised location of power, but also with some large cultural differences between the city and the wilder outlying areas. And one difference that made my ears prick up is that of Ard, which is the title of the most, that the most powerful chief in Markarth claims, which literally means King of the Fort. And, but we've already established, if you remember, the title of King is one that doesn't hold a lot of significance to the Reach that they think it's putting on airs. It's that this is a common address in First People, in anyone at all in Markarth, rather than just something that one Reach chief has taken for themselves and then been discarded, points to an idea that Markarth is distinct from everywhere else. It's a way of backing up that distinction, if you like. There's also some obvious mistrust between Markarth and the rest of the Reach. When the Longhouse Emperors ruled Cyrodiil, the report on the despot of Markarth notes that, quote, to reassure the clan chiefs that he did not intend to impose imperial law in its entirety on the free Reach folk, Morikar limited Kadach's writ to Markarth and the lands immediately surrounding the city. Thus, the clan chiefs were satisfied that Kadach was only that 
to keep order in Markarth and otherwise lead cl the clans to rule themselves. Thus, while Markarth is the most prominent place in the Reach, it can't in any way be said to control it. Even though its place means it's hard to take, successive rulers have been unable to project power out of Markarth and into the rest of the Reach. It's kind of, you can go into the place and get settled in and no one can dislodge you, but good luck going anywhere else after that. Markarth, I think, is also likely to be viewed with some ambivalence by the Reach folk with a more traditional view. According to the history of Markarth, the story in stone, the, the place was captured by the Alessian Empress Hestra in the year 1033 of the First Era, and it remained an Alessian possession until the end of that empire. Quote, Until the end of the Alessian Empire, Markarth remained under imperial control, and by all accounts a dismal and dangerous posting for all the imperial soldiers assigned to its garrison. During this time, many of the dwarven storerooms were converted into halls, houses, and workshops. The city took on the appearance we know today, although no human skill could improve upon the walls and watchtowers the dwarves had constructed. Now, this would have resulted in a degree of transformation of Markarth away from what the Reach folk would likely have the place be. I can imagine that there would be some that see that transformation as a betrayal of their culture and anyone who adopts it afterwards is taking up things that their conquerors put there. And so in order to occupy Markarth at all is to be something of a compromise ra rather than being pure reach folk, if you like, simply because of what Hestra did. And I now want to get a little bit vague and disparate and talk about the various different elements of particular things that com comprise reach clan leadership uh, i've mentioned before clan chiefs are a kind of the basic unit and by all accounts they can be patriarchal or matriarchal um so that's all good but there's also the institution of hag ravens and those are distinct from clan matriarchs but they may have some sort of link at various points the book clans of the reach notes that for the stone talon clan in particular there's a link somewhere. Quote, women of the tribe seem to be quite rare. When they're seen, their women seem to be covered in heavy cloaks made of bird feathers as if they've all taken ill. And this is later associated with being powerful spellcasters in the same text as well, which makes me think that the tribe has a particular association with the hag ravens, which the author of the text is misidentifying. So indeed, on the clans of the Reach seems to identify two clans that are led by hag ravens who are generally considered to be reach folk witches who traded their humanity for power. Uh, there are some hints, however, that the hag ravens also function independently from the rest of the reach folk tribal structure. Uh, most obviously, this is there in the book Legend of Red Eagle. Quote, One night, under a cloud-choked sky, the men of the Red Eagle warmed themselves over damp fires of smouldering moss. A huddled, shambling figure came to them, cloaked in rags, face cowled. Though his men mocked and cast stones at the stranger, Foulan sensed something and beckoned. The cowl was thrown back in the dim light, and she revealed herself to be one of the ancient and venerable hag ravens. She offered power for a price, and a pact was made. The way that this text talks about the hag raven coming into Red Eagle's tribe from the outside, so to speak, makes me think that the Hag Ravens have some form of organisation outside of the tribes, although 
it should be noted that the tribes also seem to have their own hag ravens attached on some occasions. They're noted as forming covens of their own in particular, which is perhaps where Red Eagle's particular hag raven comes from. This would then form a distinct structure apart from the general tribes, but we don't get to see anything really consistent on that. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Red Eagle himself was pretty much the only Reachman to unite the whole of the Reach against a foe, although that may just be later myth-making, given Durkarak, to be fair. He lived during the First Era and was driven out by the Empress Hestra as she claimed the Reach in what would eventually result in her halting at Bankerai and then admitting High Rock into the Empire. A Red Eagle, or Faolan, became a figure of Reach resistance and galvanised the Reach folk clans to fight against the Alessians pretty much constantly from what we can tell from the History of Markarth book. He either fled or was cast out after Hestra's initial conquest and then returned afterwards, uniting the Reachfolk clans against Imperial rule, or at least most of the clans. If you believe the book Legend of Red Eagle, he united all of them, and there were only 10 of them then. But there are bits of that book that feel anachronistic and make me think that this is one of those bits. For one thing, it calls the heads of the clans kings, so I'm a little cautious about how we treat it. And so, after that, however many clans he united, there began a long campaign by Red Eagle against the Alessians, which ultimately failed. However, not before Red Eagle pledged himself to the Hagravens in a bargain that would become a central part of Reachfolk culture and mysticism ever after. Because I think the legend gives a decent picture of what possibly happened to Red Eagle, I'm just going to carry on quoting from the passage that we went through earlier. Thus was brokered to the witch, his heart, his will, his humanity. From that day forth, his was a spirit of vengeance, pitiless and beyond remorse. The rebels grew in strength and numbers, and none could stand against them. Fowland's eyes burned coldly in those days, black opals reflecting a mind not entirely his own. Two years passed, and the foreigners were all but driven from the reach. This wouldn't last, however, because Hestra returned afterwards, killing Red Eagle and putting an end to his movement. Uh, Red Eagle being a unifier and the fact that he ultimately failed just makes me think again to Celtic history, uh, this time to Vercingetorix of the Gauls. However, beyond those two features, there isn't really too much that links the two men. Vercingetorix was, in the end, taken prisoner by Julius Caesar, held captive for two years and then beheaded after Caesar's triumph, while Red Eagle had something of a different legacy for the Reach folk after dying in battle. We have an account that I do actually trust to be accurate on the particulars in this degree, the translated works of Tosmorn. I mean, while there is some in-universe controversy about how authentic the, those works are, the end has some interesting implications, which I don't think would really be there unless there's some level of original thought about what was going on at the time going into this because it describes the events of the hag raven returning following red eagle's death quote the hag comes now to claim her due her crow in vanguard laughs to see the witchmen their ash and resin useless she takes the staff of you and brings it down upon Fowland's breast the icor within bursts forth, a black blood, and she takes the fruit of her desire, seeded in Fowlin's chest. A hundred hands draw flint, knock arrows, all lose heart, 
The hag's laugh festers at the soul as death surrounds her. A thousand crows take flight beneath her cowl and she is gone. We also have this from Red Eagle's song, which says it explicitly as well. Quote, At last he traded his eagle's heart to the ravens who covet our power. In his breast they planted the briar seed that grows from the corpse's flower. So this is the first of the briar hearts and potentially where everything started because the Red Eagle's pact is seen as something that's new and original and different. And particularly from the reaction of the onlookers in the Tosmon poem, it wasn't an established part of Reachfolk practice to extract the heart like the Hag Raven did. So as much as there are attempts during the Interregnum to bring him back using his actual descendants, I think that the Briar Hearts as Red Eagle's figurative legacy is also very important. His line and the events in the Elder Scrolls Online are important because there are legends of Red Eagle's return. Exactly what that might mean could take on a variety of different meanings, which is why the Coven tries to tap Biora to lead them in a storyline in The Elder Scrolls Online and is then trying to get Red Eagle to return via his descendants rather than by his sword, which is what the text The Legend of Red Eagle promises and what happens if you play through the questline in Elder Scrolls V. I guess it depends on wh whatever oral tradition a given Reachfolk tribe has passed down as to what precisely their understanding of the Red Eagle's legacy actually is. And another area where the reach folk vary quite a bit is in faith. There's a lot of talk about them referring to the, the old gods, particularly in the texts we get from the Elder Scrolls V, and these are thinly veiled references to the Daedra, and they're outright called Daedra in other places. I think the old gods terminology is almost entirely absent in the Elder Scrolls Online, but I could be wrong there. However, the Reach folks take on the Daedra offer some interesting perspectives on the world and they fit into a broader spiritual worldview that isn't just Daedra worship. They are revered alongside the ancestors of the tribe, for one thing, who are also there to protect the clans that they came from. The book Great Spirits of the Reach puts it like this, quote, The Reach folk worship many spirits, both great and small. In truth, there are as many faiths as there are clans in the Reach. Some clans might worship a sacred elk or the spirit of a mountain spring. Others might sacrifice goats to ghosts of ancient heroes. There are some spirits, however, that transcend clan boundaries, those we in the rest of Tamriel recognise as the Daedric Princes. There are several distinct takes that Great Spirits of the Reach puts on these Daedra, which I think has some really interesting implications for the Aedra-Daedra relationship but I first want to consider how the Reach folks see the rest of their interactions with the spirit world. So in common with most of Tamriel, Reachmen revere their ancestors to some degree. However, they also see the spirits as something that's an inherent part of the land, and I've seen the Reddit user Johnny Anonymous call the Reach folk animist in their beliefs in an article. It's in the blog post that is linked in the show notes here. If you want to read it in full, check it out. It's a brilliant summary. Um, I think the term animist is a reasonable description of how they see the world insofar as they see general spirits of place and time affecting their lives. Uh, the book A Reach Travel Guide, which is written by a Reachman, puts it like this, quote, 
First, you would do well to visit the spirit shrines and make offerings to those whose lands you now tread upon, for you will find no mercy from the divines in the reach. Before that, you will need to beg the forgiveness of its peoples you have tread upon, lest they cast you down like those who came before. If you appease the clans and spirits to gain fair passage, then you may yet survive this journey. The clans and spirits are considered together here, because they're, they're both needed to be reckoned with if you're to survive the reach, and therefore both are a potential force to impact your journey through the reach in whatever means that is. That isn't necessarily worship as we understand the term, but it's more a bargain between people and the world. That, that bargain then becomes the condition upon which civility between anything, whether person to person or god to person or spirit to person or, or person to spirit, rests. Violate that agreement and then all bets are off. The book Werewolves, Long-Suffering Guardians puts it like this, quote, Many Alessians, Northmen, and Pigfoot have come to the Reach bearing gifts. You yourself bring worthless coin and writ books as tokens of friendship. But these are all lies and tricks. Sons and daughters of the Reach know that the gifts of outsiders all carry demands. Demands for knowledge or land or help against one enemy or another. In the world of beasts and spirits, the true world, there are no gifts, only trades. This not only informs how Reach folk think about outsiders, but that the spirits are expected to give something if treated right. The spirits are often considered mercurial or at least hard to satisfy. Uh, uh, the book A Year Among the Eagleseer Clan illustrates this really well when the death of a chief is blamed upon him becoming too soft because he welcomes an outsider in, and he therefore acted improperly towards the local gods. The book Living on the Calf River paints a similar picture of the river that runs through the reach, that respect to the river itself is required in order to have a sustainable life upon it. Quote, but as with much of the reach, the Karth River provides for its people. It can be cruel one moment, then as loving as a mother the next. Those who rely on it for their survival live to see another day, if the river allows it. Those who live to old age on its banks, like my father, know that respect is key. The river may bestow plenty of fish to one and drown another, with seemingly little to distinguish between them. But those who have grown up on the calf know better. We know that the river demands respect, or at the very least consideration. This also highlights how the reach folk consider themselves beholden to the spirits of the land, as unforgiving as they may be. Part of the reason that they're so wary of outsiders is because outsiders do not appreciate the land in the way that they do, and they may therefore anger the spirits that dwell within the reach. And as well as the spirits of the land, Reach folk also revere the Daedra, or at least some of the Daedra. Great spirits of the Reach names Hercene, Nemira, Periite, and Lorcan as their primary spirits, although Malakath and the Reach considers that Malakath is also of some importance to some tribes. I think all of these speak to the Reach folk's expectations about what they can get out of the land, that they will be greeted with wildness, decay, and mortality, ultimately. But I think it's also kind of telling that the Reach folk elevate those Daedra and Lorcan um, in ways that almost mirror the Aedra, or at least subsume different Daedra and Aedric purviews into their own. And we're going to engage in a little bit of comparative theology here, if you'll indulge me, because the Reach folk's views are a grab bag of things that strike me as being quite similar in some ways to those you'll find in other cultures. 
Also, bear in mind that interpretations likely vary from tribe to tribe, and so these will not be the be-all and end-all. Hercene is a multifaceted deity, according to the book Aspects of Lord Hercene, with five different forms, that of hunter, bear, man-beast, stag, and fox. This is fitting for his role as a transformative deity, and vaguely hints at the idea of the limit of the world that is mankind or mortality. You'll, you can read more about that in the 36 lessons of Vivek, or at least there's more references to it. But that's also potentially the in referencing living things and mortality, it references the cycle of life and death as represented by the hunt, the idea of hunter and prey, and the interplay between those two. Now, however, the reference that I find the most intriguing is the one that Great Spirits of the Reach says calls her scene, quote, the avatar of the fierce and terrifying now, which is a direct mirror to Ifri as the spirit of the now in varieties of faith. I don't know that the Reach folk have a similar sense of her scene as a deity that orders everything as such. But the idea of the predator-prey rhythm as the heartbeat of the world as such would at least let Hercene have some cosmic order properties that would make him match Ifri in some way, shape or form. Although, again, how you would get Bos Murray faith influences into the reach to have that sort of cultural osmosis, I have no idea. Namira is the next one on my list, which I've drawn up and she's seen as the avatar of all primal dualisms with conflict at the core of all those uh, this speaks to decay as a process that produces life uh, but it also sounds to me a bit like the kajiti view of namira as the ancient darkness in positioning namira as a primal deity of conflict the reach folk position her as a deity that embodies the enantiomorph a duality and a conflict that shapes almost everything in the Arabis. I have done a podcast specifically going over the Enantiomorph and what the pattern represents within the Elder Scrolls cosmology. If you want some more details about that, check that podcast out. But I also think that given that Namira has those sorts of elements, that it's also possible that the Reach folk understand the idea of the Enantiomorph more than most of the cultures on Tamriel. But if that is the case, they certainly haven't written or even spoken about it in those terms. So I'm possibly taking a bit of a leap there. We also have this tidbit on the, on the Great Spirits of the Reach passage about Lork. According to the Reach myths, Lork convinced the Spirit Queen, Nimira, to grant him a place in the infinite void where he could create a realm for wayward spirits. Rather than a vibrant paradise, Lork created a hard and painful place, a realm that taught through suffering. While some resent Lork's cruelty, most praise his wisdom. According to the Reach folk, those who suffer most know best. Hardship is a means to wisdom and glory, and Lork provided hardship in ample supply. We'll get to Lork's provision of suffering in a bit, which is why I read the whole piece out, but I want to draw attention to Namira's role in that. She makes this space for creation to happen. She granted Lork a place in the infinite void where he could create a realm for the wayward spirits. And now that role is usually assigned to Kinnereth in most of the Adric myths. And that Lork is also potentially born in the primal darkness of Namira, 
in Kajiti myth also highlights that Nimira might have a much greater role in ordering the cosmos than most faiths have actually given her credit for. Periite is the last confirmed Daedra here. Periite is the force of balance for the Reach folk. As Great Spirits of the Reach tells it, he orders Mundus as well as Oblivion for the Reach folk. If this is true, then it has implications for how much the Daedra in general interfere with the mortal realm, I think. And Periite being a dragon also feels like he's mirroring the order that Akatosh provided through giving everything time, which is of less importance for the Reachmen, I imagine, because there are less ways to measure it. So instead of worrying too much about measurement, they're more fussed about seasons, who is beating who, and other order-related stuff. It's more the, the causality than the absolute passage of time, with the ultimate idea that they should then return to balance, which is under Periot's purview as well, as a survival of the fittest thing, um, as they consider that disease and decay get rid of the weak and the lame. This is subsuming bits of Akatosh, absolutely, but also Zenithar as a cosmic order deity, um, as the deity who always wins. That's kind of the idea of survival of the fittest, that you should constantly be fighting to struggle and survive and win all the time, otherwise you're not worth anything. So Zenithar has that almost Darwinistic element to him as well. And I wouldn't be surprised if they also viewed Periite as a seasonal deity um, as, as, as well because of that association with rhythm and order, which treads a bit on Arke's toes. But I have zero evidence that they do associate Periite with seasons that I can find anyway. If you can find something, please let me know. Written in uncertainty podcast at gmail.com. I'm always happy to learn more and to and to be corrected on things. Lork, as the name suggests, is Lorcan's iteration for the Reach folk. I think they're unique among the Manish races in that they link his name to his Moorish incarnation. And this is another indicator that they're not just messed up Bretons, because they don't associate Lork with Shior or Shior's attributes. If anything, because Lork creates the world as a quote, harsh and painful place, they share more with the Chimeri or Dunmeri view of creation than anything else. It's a painful place of trial that bestows lessons on people to make them better. And that idea of making folk better through suffering is personified quite gruesomely through the idea of Briar Hearts, which is where the Reach folk take out someone's heart and replace it with the seed of a Briar Heart tree to give them additional, um, additional abilities, more strength, presumably because they don't feel pain quite so much, and those sorts of features as well. But they do, in essence, become walking corpses, some of which sentient because you can talk to a briar heart in ESO, but there's also indications that they just become mindless weapons after that point, so quite what's going on there isn't clear, but the parallels between Lorcan's sacrifice of having the heart torn out in order to create the mortal plane and make a place for people which I think would have particular resonance with the Forsworn, I think is really, really clear. Um, so there is those resonances with Lorcan and Lork and so on that 
uh, that kind of bind that idea together. Although quite, quite where the Reach Folk would have got hold with the distinctly Dunmerry flavour I get from them um, to get the perspective on Lork that um, he's creating the world as a harsh and painful place isn't clear. Um, but it does map really closely to that. And it's possible that they arrived at it independently, I suppose. Um, but I do like to see if there are links to places. And I, if there is a Dunmerry genealogy, I can't see it. Uh, that idea of the um, of, Lorcan, of Lork being the one that created the place also links to the animistic side of Reach Folk belief. I think it's only fitting that the one who created a landscape that's so harsh is himself harsh in turn. And I'd also be inclined to say that the landscape's hard hardships come first and where they possibly projected onto Lork, but I have nothing really to support that. I also think that there's some potential echoing of the monomyth going on here where the where Lorcan's divine spark falls to earth to imbue it with... Uh, mortality with is it with mortality and a reasonable degree of selfishness or something else in a reasonable degree of selfishness i can't quite remember but there's the idea of lokan's heart imbuing mundus with some essence which would tally quite well with the reachman idea that the streams and the rocks and everything has some sort of spiritual significance because they've all been imbued with lork's essence um, through um, through his sacrifice. And there's also, if I can go back on myself a little bit, um, the idea that the landscape's hardships came first and the, landscape, the landscape's hardships being associated with Lork. Um, some people will immediately think, oh, House of Troubles and Maroon's Dagon. The Reach Folk aren't known to definitely revere Maroon's Dagon at this stage, I must say. I'm, I'm recording to this prior to the big chapter release for 2021 which may reveal some interesting connections between the reach folk and maroon's dagon during the gates of oblivion year but we don't know about that yet we do have some reach folk that worship molag baal but they aren't always mentioned and not not as consistently mentioned um or that sort of practice isn't as consistently mentioned as these other spirits so i'm not entirely sure what to make of it but it's the idea of the idea of domination again it fits with the idea of constant conflict and having a constant back and forth between different peoples and asking Baal to allow you to dominate others strikes me as something that fits very much within the reach folk purview and i think it's quite ironic that they spent so much of their history being dominated both by the land and by the cultures around them and that's about all that I've got to say on the Reach Folk for now. I'm aware that I've missed out on some bits um, quite substantially. I've not really gone into the Longhouse Emperors except to mention them in passing. But I wanted to get this episode out there about general Reachman culture. And we'll have a future mini-sode on the Longhouse Emperors. Um, and quite how they work because as I've hinted at they are quite pivotal to most of the events in the Elder Scrolls Online. In Even if they are just in the background. Uh, I do hope you've enjoyed this rather rambly episode of um, on, on the on the Reach Folk with me. I've been trying to impose a structure on it, and much like the folk themselves, it's been hard work um, to try and pair it into anything like order um, and to have a logical flow to it, which is why we've been jumping around a bit. 
But thank you ever so much for joining me um, on this ramble through Reach Folk Culture. Um, the next episode out will be a mini-sode on the Sigic Order. I'm not quite sure what we're doing for the next large episode. If you have anything you'd like me to discuss, um, then by all means drop me a line at writteninuncertaintypodcast at gmail.com. I will see what I can do. But until next time, this podcast remains a letter written in uncertainty. You've been listening to Written in Uncertainty, a podcast written and presented by Aramithius and edited by Dopportunity. The music for this podcast has been kindly provided by Jan Glembotsky. Check them out on SoundCloud under Songs from the Lost Land, and I'll see you next time. Since the dawn of time, there have been storytellers who teach through their stories. These myths give rise to fundamental truths, and these truths shape our collective experience. Yet these myths are not something of the past, and today they engage us more fully in the story itself. Video games allow us to live the lives of our favorite myths. My name is Blue Crew 86, host of Focus Fire Chat, and I want to invite you to explore our modern-day myths with us. Join with us as we explore the stories, the mythologies of the Destiny franchise, as well as other games. Let's explore together. Looking for an RPG podcast that isn't just D&D? Roll to cast is the answer. No, no, wait, sorry. What games have we played so far? Well, we've done Cyberpunk 2020. What does it mean to have a voice? And there's going to be something big coming, Chumba. Hey, if you're listening, I won. I beat you. You suck. There was a time when we were slamming things against our phones and... <laughs> Vampire the Masquerade. Chloe, Sam. You can't use those words! He's going to grab Vincent, press him against the wall. I mesmerize him. This is Adelaide's Anarch movement. First out of your chair, your hand goes to your gun and you draw. Hope Cthulhu. Told you I had it. Oh, we've all got the creeps going. I love it so oh, much. Right there. Screechy child. <laughs> My favorite daughter. Maybe after what we just seen, we're feeling a bit trigger happy. And the new Cyberpunk Red. Babe, you're good, but... Better. Thought maybe you might be able to give me a counter Dosvidanya. Straight through his neck. I don't see bone either, but I'm not gonna look. My leg's fine. I always knew you wanted to fly, kid. Come find me. Roll to cast. R-O-L-E. A new game every season. Original music. Original stories. Interviews with the creators. And delightful Aussie accents. Listen to us on all good podcatchers. Even support us on Patreon for bonus content. That's Roll to Cast. R-O-L-E. Come discover a new world. Following is a public service announcement from the Starter Set Dungeons and Dragons podcast. This is your D and D campaign. This is the Starter Set podcast. You know how like poison frogs don't lick each other's backs. So it's Hal's Moving Castle mm-hmm. with a face. Mm. Hey there, I'm Great Mandibles. Because <laughs> one of the party speaks abyssal. You're all going to die. <laughs> and then adventure falls into your lap. This is your D&D campaign after listening to the Starter Set Podcast. So join Sam and Ed every Friday on the Starter Set Podcast for prime Dungeons & Dragons content. Any questions?